So today is the fifth and final message in this series, To Have and to Hold. It's a series on, mess, on, on marriage, not messes, marriage. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> and in this series, we've been talking about five commitments that we've invited you to make that I really believe will... Uh, solidify the foundation of your relationship, but also raise the bar on it and, and make the relationship just healthier and better to be a part of. So in the first week, we looked at this idea of one and then two, that everywhere in Scripture, God says He is to be first. And this is the platform from which life is to flow from. And that when it comes to the marriage relationship or anything in life for that matter, if He's first, it makes all the difference. And this is the foundation for a healthy relationship. And then second in our life should be our spouse. Not anything else, not anyone else. And this is how God intended it. We talked at length in that time about the importance of praying together as a couple. The next week we talked about the fact that we have disagreements. This is a normal part of the human existence And we have fights and disagreements. And we said, how are we going to go about this? How are we going to fight in a way where the focus is on, not on victory, but on resolution? And so we we gave the word picture of, of boxing and sparring. That in boxing, as you see in the picture that's displayed behind me, the idea is to conquer that person, to win, to lord it over them. Whereas sparring, on the other hand, in the picture you see behind me, um, has that image that, that we're in this together, we're working together to get better at what we're trying to do. And so we said, God wants us to spar rather than to box when we have disagreements and fight for resolution rather than victory. The third week, we talked about enjoy. That God wants us, he doesn't look at marriage and say this should be a dull, boring, ritualistic affair. It should be fun. It should have a a healthy sexual relationship component to it. A growing, healthy sexual relationship component. That we didn't fall in in love with someone and say, man, that person is just incredibly boring. I have nothing in common and I don't want to spend any time with them. No, we, we enjoyed their company, and we had fun together. And so to capture that again, and to express it as well in the sexual relationship. Last week, we talked about puravita, which is an expression they often use in Costa Rica, and it literally means the pure life the pure life, or the good life. And we talked about how Scripture says in Ephesians 5, there shouldn't be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity in our life. And so we talked about adultery, we talked about uh, the, the impurity of being addicted to pornography, or having an emotional affair, and not even having a hint of impurity in our life, and how that raises the bar on our relationship and on our marriage. Before we look at our fifth and final message here, let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are for your love for us, for your word, which we believe is not some dusty relic, but something that's living and active and vibrant. And through your spirit, you speak to us in very personal and intimate ways. We invite you to do that today for your glory in a way that brings honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In my experience... Often, not always, but often, opposites attract. And so when people are dating, they're often attracted to someone 
uh, somewhat different than themselves, but there's a little expression that someone came up with that opposites attract, but after you're married, opposites attack. So let's just do a little survey, just have a little fun here, try not to embarrass too many people. Um, How many of you here like to be punctual, like you want to be on time when something takes place? Quite a few of you. How about, okay, you can put your hands up. How about, how many of you here are more, I'm going to just use this expression, more creative with your time? And, and you, you know, just take as long as you want to put your hand up. Just kind of do that whenever you want to. But there's opposites, isn't there? How, do me, how many of you when, you, when you go on a trip, like to plan that trip? Somebody was telling between services, they want to plan every element of the trip, where they're going to stop and all that. And then there's the next person that, you know, um, if there's such a thing anymore as an actual paper map, they will lay a map on the table, they'll take a bottle, they'll spin it, and wherever the neck of the bottle goes, that's the direction we're driving until we run out of gas. Opposites often attract money. There's some here that are savers, some that are spenders. And diversity is a gift from God. Such a boring world if we were all the same. And so it's a great gift from God, diversity. But having said that, we all know that because of diversity, we can really butt heads. And over time, um, that can go from sort of a small brush fire to something that gets a little bigger and eventually becomes a raging inferno of mistrust and deceit and unforgiveness and bitterness and all kinds of stuff. And people sit there and they're scratching their heads going, I don't get it. You know, we used to be in love like all the songs on the radio talk about and now we're heading to divorce court. Like, how did that happen? And we know and we've talked about this many times that because God loves us, Because he wants the absolute best for us. He doesn't want that to happen. And I believe with all my heart, I'm committed to this, that with his help, it doesn't need to happen. Just remember that the evil one has a directly opposed agenda. Scripture says about him that he's our enemy. It says that in 1 Peter chapter 5, that he's like a a roaring lion going around seeking whom he can devour. It says in John chapter 8 that he's the father of lies. It also says in the book of John that his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so when he looks at, at a marriage, he wants to wreck it. He wants to destroy it. God is the exact opposite. He wants what's best. He loves us. He wants us to have a healthy relationship. And I believe he's committed to helping that happen. And so we're going to talk this morning about staying power. Staying power. And now what I am not talking about, I want to be very clear about this. What I'm not talking about is staying in a place where you're a punching bag. Or you're being abused. That's the case. You need to get to a place of safety, a place of healing, a place of counseling. I'll also say, though, that that doesn't mean you have to give up on your marriage. There's still hope. Let me say to those of you that are here that are already divorced, my goal is absolutely not to pile on guilt. That's not the goal. Because the chances are, if you're here and you're divorced, for many of you, maybe not all of you, but for many of you, you already feel a lot of guilt. And you actually may have done everything that you could. 
you, you cried out to God for help, and you did everything you could to try to keep that marriage growing and healthy and keep it going. But the other person wouldn't work with you. And you're devastated by that. Or there's others that are here that are divorced, and, and they might be just saying, well, to be honest with you, I really blew it big time. And if I had to do it over again, there'd be a lot of things I would do different. We're not focusing on the past today. We've talked about those kind of things other times. We're focusing today on to have and to hold in our marriage today. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 19. And Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. And Jesus is speaking. And we're going to read verses 3 through 6 in Matthew 19. We're not going to read verses 7 and on, which are part of this passage. Those are verses we've talked about at other times. So we're not going to focus on those verses or their content, just verses 3 through 6. And so um, Jesus is in dialogue with the Pharisees. And it says in verse 3, Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Remember that the Pharisees are people that hate Jesus. Most of them anyway. They're opposed to him. They feel threatened by him. They think he's going to change the way uh, you connect with God. Their, their power base is being eroded because of him. And so uh, they're the ones, along with the, the, the Sadducees, that orchestrate the murder of Christ. They conspire together. They pay people off. They make things up. They exert political pressure. And they have Jesus murdered on Good Friday. And so this question is not a positive experience that they're trying to portray. What they're trying to do, and we're going to see this in a moment, is they're trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. They're going to say, okay, there's a common practice in the culture here where people are being abused through this issue of divorce. And it's kind of hard for us to imagine. But in that culture, women were seen as property. And women could be divorced by their husbands for basically any reasons. Rabbi Hillel, one of the rabbis of that day, actually said that if, if a woman burns the food, this was grounds for divorce. It was just ridiculous. And so they're getting divorced over and over and over again. And so they say to them, they think, here's a tricky question. We'll ask Jesus this question. Can a guy get divorced for any and all reasons? And what they're trying to do is they'll say, what will he do? Will he hold up the standard of Scripture... Or will he bow down and kowtow to the culture? And if he holds up the scripture, will he'll lose his popularity with the culture. And so there's a this is a trick question that they ask him, and they have bad motives as they ask it. And so they say to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Here's what Jesus says, haven't you read? Now they've read this many times, they've memorized it. So he knows they know it. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two <clears throat> will become one flesh. So you are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So what Jesus does is he takes their question and he doesn't raise the standard of what's going on in the culture. 
a little bit, or even a medium amount, or even a lot. He raises the standard to the highest possible level, all the way to the top. And what he's doing by doing that is just quoting and reaffirming what the book of Genesis says. He says, hey, you've read in Genesis chapter 2 that when God created marriage, he said, these guys, two, shall become one. No longer two, but one. This is what God has put in place. Now, what, what God is not saying by that when he says two shall become one, is no, he's saying no longer will you have a personality in marriage. He's not saying that. No longer will you have individual gifts. He's not saying that. No longer will you have an individual identity. All those things remain in place. Your identity, your personality, your gifts from God. But two are, are melded together, are blended together, one. Therefore, in light of this, Jesus says, affirming what Genesis says, what God, therefore, in light of this, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It's like, it's like if you took two pieces of paper and you super glued them together, smeared super glue on both sides and slapped those papers together. Jesus said it's like that. And then later, if you're trying to separate that, which you're not intending, you would never want to do, but if you, if you tried, what would happen to the paper? It would become a horrible mess. And this is why divorce hurts so much. And that's why those that are here or people that you know that have been divorced, you know the pain. And if you were a child or a teenager and your parents divorced, you know the pain. No matter what you believe about this theologically, you know the pain. I said earlier in this series, I remind you now, that marriage is not about a contract. We have to exit that from our mind. Marriage is a covenant. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but as I understand a basic contract, a basic contract is written, in a sense, based on mutual distrust. The goal of a contract, as I understand it, is to limit my responsibility, and it's met as clearly as possible to set my rights in stone. In a typical contract, there's opting out clauses. If, if, this, if the other party doesn't do this, 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 and this, I can opt out. A typical contract will have provisos in it for timelines. This contract begins here, and after these things happen, it ends there. And when people enter a marriage with a contract mindset, it's very difficult. Because they're tempted to think, and this is shouted at them all the time, as long as you make me happy, I'm in. As long as you meet my needs as I perceive them and the way they should be met. As long as nothing better comes along, I'm in. But at the moment, any combination of those things take place, and they're not to my satisfaction, I'm going to opt out of this contract. Listen to me very carefully. Biblical marriage is not meant to be a contract. It is a covenant. And a covenant is permanent. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that God is a covenantal God. God makes relationships that are permanent. This is what Jesus is saying. 
In the Old Testament, the word for covenant, the Hebrew word is, is often translated berith, which literally means a cutting. And to illustrate a covenant or a cutting, they would do this not all the time, but they do it at times. When they were about to enter into a covenant, they would take a bull and they would cut it, they would saw it in half. And they would push the two parts apart. And the people entering into the covenant would walk through the middle of the bull back and forth seven times. And it was understood by everyone there. It was often articulated that if I break my covenant with you, may what happened to this bull happen to me. See, they took covenant very seriously. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking about getting married, and you're both biblical believers, and by that I mean you have personally come to the place of of owning your sin, of going, I have done sinful things to offend and alienate myself from a holy God. And this is why, at the heart of why Jesus came. Because there's nothing I can do, nothing I can do, to pay for or atone for or compensate for that sin. And this is why Jesus came, because it says in Scripture, all of my sin was put on him. This is why he went to the cross. He wasn't just a good moral teacher or a good guy. He came to save the sin of the world. He came to save my sin. And there's nothing else I can do to pay for or atone for that. No other act. No other activity. And that Jesus died on the cross in my place. I admit my sin. I ask for forgiveness based exclusively on his actions of going to the cross and rising from the dead. And I commit my life, not in part, but in whole, with him first in my life as the Lord of my life. I have that kind of a relationship with Jesus. And I'm looking to marry someone that has a similar or the same relationship. If that's the case, can I urge you? Don't go to a justice of the peace to get married. Go to a biblically-based pastor. And I'm going to go one step further. Uh, I've done weddings out in the great outdoors. They're beautiful, blah, 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 all that good stuff. But I urge you, get married in a church. And here's why. Because it paints a very welcoming word picture of the relationship you're entering into. When you stand before a biblically-based pastor, he opens the word before you and shares it with you. You're in a church because what you're doing is you're entering, listen to me carefully here, you are entering into a covenant with holy God. This is not some contract that the government came up with. You are entering into a covenant with holy God and the person you're marrying. And I believe that image before a pastor in a church is a great word picture that you will go back to in your mind over and over again. Think of the words of the covenant. And they, sometimes the words change a little bit, but, but basically they're like this. Part of the covenant is to have and to hold from this day forward until death do us part. So help me God. That's serious stuff, friends. That's serious stuff. You know, Billy Graham died, what, a couple weeks ago? And his wife was asked once. See, Billy traveled all over the world, and he was gone for extended periods. And his wife, Ruth, who had been a missionary kid born in China, 
Uh, she was into ministry and all that kind of stuff, but it was tough with Billy gone so much. And she was asked directly one time, did you ever consider divorcing Billy because he was gone so much? And, and, and that, was, that was a hardship as a parent, as a, as a wife and, and husband. And she said, she said, I, I never considered divorcing Billy. I did consider murdering him at times, but never divorce. Now, she was joking, but also making a very serious point. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to have and to hold from this day forward until death do us part, so help me God. That's serious stuff. Serious stuff. But Scott, I'm not happy anymore. You don't know what she did, Scott. You don't know how he's changed. He's not the same guy that I married. I don't have, I've tried, I don't have any more forgiveness to offer. I don't love her anymore. Scott, I don't know if I ever loved him. I was just confused. Now, I'm not in your position, and I don't understand what you're going through. I wouldn't pretend to. But I am convinced that when you start coming to those points in life, this is the exact, I'm absolutely convinced of this, this is the exact moment when the first of the five commitments pay the biggest dividends. Remember the first one? God will be first in my life. I will seek him first no matter what. And you are, if you're doing that, you are in relationship with the supernatural God that created all the universe, that sustains all the universe. The book of Ephesians tells us that the next breath you take is only because he gives it to you. And you are in relationship with the supernatural God who when you have no more love to give, He will love through you with agape love, with divine love, which is God's kind of love. I've told you about this before. I remind you of this. Remember that God's kind of love is based in the person doing the loving. It is irrelevant what the person being loved is doing or not doing when it comes to agape love. Because when God loves us, He loves us not at all based on what we've done or who we are, or us deserving it, because we totally don't. There's not one thing we have done that merits the love of God. Not one thing. And so when we live with agape love, when we have no more love to give, and He loves supernaturally through us, it is irrelevant what the other person is doing or not doing. Think about that. Think about what God's love is like in Bible. He offers that to us. So someone says, well, Scott, I'm doing this, but it, it doesn't appear to be helping. I want to encourage you. Um, again, I don't remember, I, I don't get what you're going through. I totally, totally admit that. But I want to, I want to rem- remind you of this principle of sowing and reaping. In marriage, but it also is deeply applicable in any relationship in life. 
So if you have your Bible again, turn over to the book of Galatians, which is just a little to the right, past uh, the Gospels, Acts, uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you'll come to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, last chapter in the book of Galatians. And Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, local church, and he says this, do not be deceived. See, there's all kinds of people out there who are intentionally or unintentionally lying to us about this stuff. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Do not give up. Staying power. And so if you're in this covenantal relationship with this spouse and it's rough, it, it just makes me think there's this movie I saw when I was a teenager. And Gregory Peck, um, he's full of emotion and he says this to David Niven. He says, you're in it now, up to your neck. And the premise of the scene is that you're in it, David. So you might as well get, get with the program and do something because there's no, you know, there's no way out. And and if you find yourself in this covenantal relationship and it's much less than you had hoped for, it's time to become desperate and say, with God's help, God, I want this to change. Do whatever you have to in and through me because I, I can't control what they're going to do or not do. But would you do something in and through me because I know I'm in it now up to my neck. So what are the two things, there's a couple of principles in these three verses that Paul gives to the Galatian church and to us. He says, first of all, first principle is you reap what you sow. Uh, Galatians, you reap what you sow. And this is real simple. Just think with me. You reap what you sow. If someone smiles at you, isn't it likely you'll smile back? Unless you're a real grump. It's more likely you're going to smile back when they smile at you. But if someone swears at you or calls you names, what are you likely to do? In marriage, if someone shows grace and compassion and thoughtfulness, especially when that person does not deserve it, has not earned it. Remember that agape love? There's nothing about them that would invite me to treat them in a loving way. They haven't earned it. They don't deserve it. But in marriage, if someone shows grace and compassion and thoughtfulness when that other person doesn't deserve it, over time, what is likely to happen? I'm not making promises because, again, you can't control how they'll react. But what is likely to happen over time? But if, on the other hand, someone's always complaining and comparing and being critical over and over again, what is likely to happen? Defensiveness, anger, self-justification, and a few other, other nasty words I won't mention. We reap, Paul says, what we sow. Craig Rochelle said, if you don't like what you're getting, look at what you've been giving. If you don't like what you're getting, 
Look at what you've been giving. And again, I say, you cannot control how they respond. The Bible is very clear about that. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, says in Romans 12, be at peace with everyone. So Paul understands there's some people, they're just warmongers, and they're not, they're not going to play. Okay? But for you, for me, if you don't like what you're getting, look at what you've been giving. You reap what you sow. Secondly, in that same passage, you reap where you sow. You reap where you sow. So let me just ask you some honest questions, okay? And, and it's really hard to be honest with ourselves. We struggle with that a lot. So let me ask you some honest ones. If I pour my energy, if I prioritize my energy into my passion or my hobby, is that going to help my marriage get better? You know, I might be really great at golfing or bowling or gardening or painting or, or crosswords, I don't know. But my marriage stinks. If I put all my energy into my kids and we become child-centered parents, is that going to help my troubled marriage? Is that actually the best thing to do for those kids? Not a chance. If I put all my energy, prioritize my energy into my career, is that going to help my marriage? Let's have the courage to ask ourselves this honest question. Why are things not going the way they should in my marriage? Is it because we have not been putting God first and our spouse second? Have we allowed anything else or anyone else to move into that number two slot? As soon as we do that, then marriage will not be what God wants it to be. Have we been fighting fair? Or are we boxing and trying to conquer and trying to win and trying to put them on the canvas? Or are we sparring? Fighting for victory rather than fighting for resolution. Are we not having fun? Are we the couple that fun forgot? Are we not developing and, and uh, contributing like we should, like it says in 1 Corinthians 7, in the sexual relationship? Are we staying pure, pure of vita, pure vita, the pure life? And is that why you're thinking about giving up this morning rather than staying power? Nine, verse nine again. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Again, you can't control how they're going to react. Only can, the only thing that can be controlled is, is what you allow God to do through you or through me. And it could be with the other person that it isn't the right time yet. It says, at, for at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. So what might that harvest look like? That harvest might mean healing in the relationship. It might mean health. It might mean a whole series of three steps forward and two steps back. But over time, there's slow, incremental, healthy change. It might mean that one day you'll have a story to tell where you'll get up and say, in all honesty, I, did all, I made all kinds of bad choices. I was way off the rails but God forgave me and changed me. I was unfaithful or I was this or I was that. And God forgave my sin and he changed me into a man of God. Or I was neglectful. The kids were more important to me than my husband was. 
and God changed me, and my kids were still deeply important to me. But they understood clearly that in the hierarchy, it was my husband before them. And now your kids look at you and go, well, mom and dad had it rough there for a long time. But wow, God did some incredible stuff in their life. And even though there's still some bumps, they have a relationship with each other before God. And you leave a spiritual legacy with your kids and your grandkids. The last words of verse 9. Do not give up staying power to have and to hold. 